Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, I'm Joel, and I'm absolutely honored to be able to serve you today. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can open it there, or you can turn in your bulletins. I've also provided it there. That'll be our first text. But first, I want to tell a story to help us locate it. A Cinderella-type story. Imagine a poor girl enslaved, being treated like dirt, forced to work for evil masters. This girl, she cries out again and again to be rescued from a horrific slavery as she lays her head down at night. She's bruised, beaten, berated daily, unable to sleep. And then one day, a rescuer shows up. And not just any rescuer. It's a great king. This king defeats her tormentors and he sets her free. She cannot believe that her cry was actually heard. And she's breathless that a great king would be the one who cared about her, a poor commoner. How much more stunned was she when he proposed marriage to her, a poor common girl? This king truly loved this commoner and with a perfect love. It was a fairy tale come true. He asked her then to meet her at a special place where the king said to her, you're going to be my bride and together we are going to establish a kingdom unlike any other, a kingdom that frees the captives. It, it helps the poor and the needy. It lifts up those who are broken and shows them mercy. We're going to set it up in the finest land in the whole world. It'll be like a garden paradise. It was so clear, his love for her. But, of course, this poor common girl, she doubted his love. She had trouble believing her new life. So to further reveal his love, this great king created a special day just for her, and he called it Delightful Day. Delightful Day. On that day, all kingdom matters would be put on hold so that they could simply spend time together. They would sing, talk. They would feast for hours and just talk at the table. And then afterwards, they go for long walks in the countryside. And sometimes, to remind her of his care for folks like her, they would go out and care for the poor and the needy just to bless them. This was the greatest love this world has ever seen. No exaggeration. And then the unimaginable happened. She began to let those doubts that came to her win. At first, it was hardly discernible. She would still show up on delightful day, even dressed up. But folks noticed that while he was all in, she was not as present anymore. Her smile seemed forced. And her loving king could see it too. As he gazed into her eyes, he could see she was looking off into space, her heart elsewhere. And then one delightful day, she showed up, but she wouldn't eat, she wouldn't sing, she didn't want to talk. They went out for a walk, and she suddenly pulled her hand from his. She gave him a glare, and she walked away. She left the greatest love from this wonderful king to return to her old master's. Friends, what I am telling you is not a fairy tale. It is the story of Old Testament Israel. 
It is the story of the modern church today. And I'll admit, oftentimes, it's my story. And it's probably yours, too. But today is the day that that will change if we do not harden our hearts. Let us pray before we read God's word. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us to grasp the heights of your plans for us, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. By grace, we'll stand on your promises, and by faith, we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, until your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 5, we're going to read the first nine verses. Now hear the word of our God. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go for three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I only read half the chapter, by the way. Pharaoh goes on and on with this rhetoric. If you're just joining us, we're in a sermon series called Rest for the Weary, God's Gift of the Sabbath. And what we're discovering anew, or maybe even for the first time, is that to show you and I God's love, to his love for us, he graciously gave us the gift of the Sabbath. He gave you the gift of the Sabbath. We serve a God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they existed in all eternity in a happy, loving fellowship. And We saw last week that they created humans in their image, in their likeness, to reflect their rule, their creativity, and even their union as three persons in one God, man and woman, were to become one flesh. And I may say, hold on, Joel, that's only two in one. And you're right, my friend. Man and woman were still incomplete, needing one more to complete their story, to complete their joy. They were made for fellowship with their creator, God, which is why God created a special day for them to stop their labor and to taste the joyful fellowship in their God, their triune God. The Bible begins by establishing a six plus one pattern. Six days we work, and one day we rest. We relish our relationship with our God. We reflect on what he's done for us. 
Out of love for us who get weary because we're finite, God gifted humanity with a day, the Sabbath, a day to Sabbath. As finite creatures, we're limited in our time, our space, our power, our knowledge. Once a week, guess what? You get to say no to good labors and to rest. And I want us to see that living and learning the no principle is necessary to being who God created you to be. It's actually a very foundational principle found in Genesis 2, the second chapter in the Bible. And it's not just about the Sabbath. What does God say later in the chapter? He says, Adam, here's a garden buffet, all you can eat. Save one. One tree you must say no to, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, you must trust me that saying no to this is for your good. You must trust that I know what is best for you even if you don't understand. Hmm, children, that sounds like something your parents would say, doesn't it? <laughs> and you should listen to them and trust that they love you and not listen to other voices. You know what happens in Genesis 3? Satan, in the form of a serpent, tells Adam and Eve, limits are bad. They pr- he promises that they will be like God if they reject the no principle and say yes to this forbidden fruit. And they like the thought of being unlimited, not being finite, of being like God. That was a big mistake because they handed over rule in our world to Satan who became our master. All the stuff we see in our world, the ambulance just driving by a little bit ago, this is the result of a new master on the scene. Adam and Eve and all their children, us included, came under Satan's power. We became his slaves. They refused to trust that God knew best, and they lost all, including their rest. That's actually why the second book in the Bible begins with God's people now in slavery, now ruled by a serpent. Satan's puppet in Exodus chapter 1 in the book of Exodus is Pharaoh, the Egyptian ruler. Have you ever seen that strange headgear that Pharaoh wears? It's called the Uraeus, and it's fashioned to look like a cobra, like a serpent. And like the snake in Genesis, we see Pharaoh is out to ruin God's people. The end of Genesis, actually, you have this Hebrew named Joseph, wonderful story, and he advised an earlier Pharaoh to store up grain, to stockpile grain because a famine was coming. As a result of all this stockpiling, when you come to Exodus 1, Egypt is the most wealthy nation on the planet. But did prosperity result in rest for the people of God? No. Exodus 1 begins with a later Pharaoh forgetting all about Joseph and enslaving God's people, afflicting them with heavy burdens, making them construct storehouses, more and more and more and more storage, so that the wealthiest nation in the world could continue to amass more and more wealth. Bodies and souls of God's people, they're taxed to the breaking point as they build brick day after day after day. Laborers, they're producing these massive structures. We still see and visit them today to advance the schemes of the powerful. God's people find themselves at the bottom of the first ever pyramid scheme. They're weary and they cannot find any rest. So God hears the cry of his people And he begins the rescue plan, Exodus 5, which we just read from. He sends Moses and Aaron, and they show up and say, Hey, Pharaoh, can you give uh, us people three days respite? Three days off. After 400 years, 
That seems reasonable, don't you think? The wealthiest man on the planet giving his workforce three days off. Did you hear Pharaoh's ridiculous rhetoric? How dare you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. How dare you make them rest from their burdens? They are idle. Let heavier work now be laid upon them for even asking. You are idle, you are idle, you are idle. So friends, um, I don't know if you've noticed or read history books, but we are in the wealthiest nation on the planet and in history, which by the way is a benefit of Joseph advice. Christian ideas and the Protestant work ethic are actually the origin of our nation. Despite recent shortages, we still have massive food surpluses, enormous wealth. Oh, and like Egypt, we have a lot of storage facilities. 2.3 billion square feet of storage space for all the stuff we can't even keep in our homes and growing. Do you think Pharaoh would be proud of us? Here's my first question. Is our prosperity resulting in our rest? Statistics indicate not. Burnout, stress, chronic health issues are all on the rise. There are relentless work pressures, demands on our time never decrease, even though the amount of our remaining time keeps slip sliding away, as Paul Simon would say. Technology, which is meant to make life easier, now makes it hard to disconnect without feeling disconnected. Now, I'm no Luddite, but the pace of our culture, I believe, is Satan's strategy. Corey Ten Boom once said, if the devil cannot make us bad, he will make us busy. He will make us busy. In Wayne Muller's Sabbath book, he talks about this South American tribe that used to go on these long marches for days, just marching like mad. But then they suddenly just stop make camp, and then they would rest for really, really long spells, refusing to press on. And this seemed really strange to Western eyes. So when they're asked why they rested so long, they would say this, oh, we're waiting to let our souls catch up. Where is your soul right now? Where is your soul? Are you able to stop for long spells? Henry Nouwen said, We aren't a rest-filled people who occasionally become restless. We are a restless people who occasionally find rest. Is he right about our culture? Friends, I am so glad you're here. I have good news for you. The word of God to you today is, Let my people go that they may serve me. And our God is a better master. God is still rescuing. He's offering a kinder yoke to anyone who wants to take off that yoke of slavery and receive his. A rest that begins when we actually come into his presence to worship him. In Exodus, God rescues his people by smashing Pharaoh, setting them free, and he brings them to his holy mountain. And he reveals plans for a new kingdom. But before they're going to set that up, God says, I'm going to give you a present first. Something they had lost in Genesis 3. Here it is. And it's a present for you too. It's our second text from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
Here it is, the present. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What was your first response when you heard me read that command? This is important because how that strikes you tells you what's going on in your heart. God offers you a day of no work, a whole day to be holy. That means devoted to God. Did you notice the direction? A day to the Lord. Did you think, thank you. What a gift. Did your heart beat faster as you thought about a whole day that you could spend with holy God, loving him and letting him love you? Or did your heart groan? Did you think, what a burden. I have to give up a whole day? How will I make time? Hold on to that. I want us now to first consider how the first audience, the original audience, the Hebrews, would have heard this command. Folks enslaved for 400 years. Our nation is not even 300 years old. 400 years in horrific, awful slavery. And think of other trauma. They killed their babies for population control. Imagine the trauma of generation after generation after generation who knew only slavery, daily beatings, abuse, and it was perpetual, never-ending. The Egyptian calendar had no days off. It was like three 10-day weeks for the month. And that's all they knew for 400 years. None of us can wrap our minds around that. What would have been their response when a new and a better master said, here's a present, a new calendar, which I simply want you to stop and to rest and enjoy being with me for one whole day. No work, no labors. Oh, and I want you to give rest to others as well. Do you think there was a groan in any of their hearts when God handed them delightful day? Not a chance. It would seem too good to be true. The greatest love gift that could have ever been given. It would be so great to say, no, I don't have to work for a day. Sadly, though I think that was their initial response, they did struggle to say no and to accept the gift. Read Exodus 16. Read Numbers 16. Exodus number 15. You see, this is what sin has done to our hearts. You see, it's like addiction. It's like addiction. See, they knew on one level that slavery to the world was killing them, but they still believed that they needed it in order to go on living. You get that? It took no time to get Israel out of Egypt. It took a 40-year start to get Egypt 
out of Israel. It was a detox, that 40 years in the wilderness. But it wasn't over. That's why I read from Deuteronomy the second time Moses gives the Ten Commandments. Last week we read the command from Exodus 20 when they first got there and they'd just been set free. What I just read came 40 years later. Israel is about to enter the promised land, but for 40 years Israel has struggled to stop and to rest, to trust God's heart. Over and over, if you read the account, they want to go back to Egypt again and again and again. In the Exodus version we saw last week, the Sabbath was about God's creation. They were finite. You're limited, so you need to stop for a day. Here, it's about redemption. God said, I set you free from slavery, so keep the Sabbath. Don't go back. That's why the language here is much stronger than the first time. The first time, God said, remember the Sabbath. Here, God commands, observe the Sabbath. Why the emphasis, Joel? Two thoughts. Where do you start with folks still suffering from 400 years of PTSD. Where do you start? Well, God's answer is SDPT. Sabbath day proximity therapy. God says you need to come near to me once a week and you will find healing for your souls. The Sabbath is meant to heal our souls. And think about it. How is it that a traumatized former group of slaves are today among the brightest people in the world? How many Jews have done amazing, remarkable things, advances in things we have today? There's a saying. It's not that the Jews kept the Sabbath, but the Sabbath kept the Jews. I think a second reason is that prosperity was soon to be theirs. They were about to head to the land of milk and honey. And with that, temptation to forget the no principle would come and to set up a, a system like the Egyptians. In the Exodus version, the vertical dimension was more in line. Here, it's actually the horizontal, the love of neighbor. The Sabbath day is a day when we are to seek to help others find rest too. Just as God helped us rest. Now, I know a command to rest seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? But as Eugene Peterson writes, nothing less than a command has the power to intervene in the vicious, accelerating, self-perpetuating cycle of faithless and graceless busyness. I'm not sure how brave I am in preaching a Sabbath series. But this is a command that pastors would do well to preach, knowing that hearts resist, including my own. Pastor A.J. Swoboda tells of how he decided to preach his first series on the Sabbath. And he had preached on hot topics, controversial things like sexuality, abortion, marijuana, immigration. But he never met the kind of hostility when he preached on Sabbath keeping. Folks hated the idea of being commanded to stop and rest for a whole day. It dawned on him after all this flack he got, it dawned on him that if he lied about the church's finances, he'd be in trouble. If he cheated on his wife, he'd surely get fired. If he stole from the church, definitely lose his job. If he set up an idol in the sanctuary for people to worship, <laughs> he'd be removed in a heartbeat. If he broke any of the nine commandments, it would cost him dearly, 
But if he chose not to take a day off, he said, I would probably get a raise. Why is it that the church in America has subtracted this commandment so we only have the nine? I was just walking with a neighbor last week who was like, oh, I'm so glad God abrogated the Sabbath commandment. Because I was talking about maybe putting up the Ten Commandments back in Elkhart. I didn't even bring it up. This is just what so many people think. Why is it so hard to say no once a week, even when we know God means to do us good? Friends, it's a heart condition. Just after finishing the Ten Commandments, God says in Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. God gives us something for our good and the good of our children. What's our problem? Our hearts. If you've tuned out, please listen here. Your heart is doing one of two things right now as this Sabbath gift is held out to you. It is either longing to know God better and to take a hold of this gift, and maybe even for the first time, or there's a beep, beep, beep happening as a cement mixer truck is backing up to your heart and Satan is ready to tilt it and just start pouring concrete into it. Don't let him. The Bible talks again and again and again about how we harden our hearts. We read from Hebrews earlier. Dave read that. Hebrews is talking about Sabbath rest there. And three times it warns us, don't harden your heart. If you feel you are hardening, or maybe you already feel your heart, I invite you to pray even to God right now. God is the God, Ezekiel 36, who loves to take out a heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh. God's Old Testament bride, Israel, their story is a long history of Sabbath subtracting, little bit by little bit by little bit. Their heart was not interested in a day to the Lord, but to their own pleasures. Read Nehemiah 13, Amos 8, Jeremiah 17, Isaiah 58. That's why God actually had to pluck them out of the land, put them back in slavery. Then in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, when Israel is sadly back under yet another master, the Romans. They've ironically gone the opposite way. Now it's Sabbath edition. They're adding all these Sabbath rules. They think that God will bless them because they're now so obedient keeping all the Sabbath and they become legalists. But their hearts are still not in it. They entirely miss the point that the Sabbath is just the shadow. The Sabbath is just a shadow. That's the Paul point Paul makes in Colossians chapter 2. The Sabbath is a shadow. What's the reality, Joel? Jesus Christ, the great king, the bridegroom. Dane Ortland says of Jesus, our bridegroom, he is that of which the Sabbath is a shadow. Jesus is the shadow caster. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He lets the frenetic RPMs of our heart Slow down to calm sanity. So why is it that the Sabbath command is so often the hardest for us? Well, because it's different than all the rest. All the others are about doing or not doing. The Sabbath is about resting, stopping, trusting God, 
and learning to love, knowing that Jesus has done all that you need, the Son sent by the Father to save you from sin and Satan. You see, the Sabbath is the gospel in a real sense. It's an invitation to come to Jesus, to give your heart to him, and to discover his heart for you. Friends, the Sabbath was pointing to the day when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would leave his throne and come to our weary earth in our flesh. The day when we would see God's heart on human legs. And he calls out today to you right now, each and every one of us, right where you're sitting, and this is what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the Sabbath is not just about your heart for God. It's also about God's heart for you. Jesus says, take that heavy yoke of the world off for a day. He says, take my easy yoke. I think you should translate this, my kinder yoke. It's a yoke that's like no other. It gives rest to your soul. It's the most wonderful offer. Do you know that this is the only time in all the four Gospels where Jesus holds out his heart for everyone to see? And remember, the heart is not just a characteristic or an attribute of God. The heart is the animating center of who a person is. It's what gets Jesus up in the morning. What do we find when Jesus holds out his heart? It's gentle. It's lowly. Meets you where it's at. He has the most accessible heart in the whole universe. That means Jesus, who is the master of the universe, does not ever look at us despite all the mess, all the panic, all the frenzy. He does not look at us and grit his teeth and reluctantly kind of extend his arm. No. He wants to sweep us up in his arms and in his love. Do you hear his call? This is the invitation of the Sabbath. This is the gift. Do you know what immediately follows this passage in Matthew? Matthew chapter 12. Some religious people accuse Jesus' disciples of violating the Sabbath, not keeping the rules. And right after that, you have this Sabbath scene in the synagogue. And when Jesus walks in to a group just like us, He sees all the eyes are on him waiting to accuse him, to see if he would dare to give rest to a poor crippled man. This passage, these two scenes are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That means it's a really important passage if all three include it. And in Matthew and Mark, it leads these people who watch Jesus walk in the room, it leads them to such fury that at the end they all decide this is the point he must die. This is the point. This is the issue that they decide now Jesus must die. Joel, all this hostility over the Sabbath? Do you think that the Sabbath might be a bigger deal than what we realize? Read the scene in Mark 3. It's incredible. Go home and read it tonight. Jesus walks into a gathering of God's people and all the eyes are glaring at him as he walks in. And Jesus gives them a stare back. It's a rare Greek word. An intense, long, prolonged stare at everybody in the room. 
It's the only time when you ever see Jesus get angry like this. And why is Jesus angry? Mark tells us he is grieved at the hardness of their hearts on the Sabbath. You see, all these years, the Sabbath, given the Old Testament, had been pointing to God's coming, Jesus' coming in the Bible. And Jesus has come. The bridegroom has arrived to lay down his life for his bride to show his love. And the Lord of the Sabbath arrives, and they don't want him. He is there in their midst, and they're not interested. Let me ask you, do you ever come to church on Sunday to a place where God is waiting to meet you? where he loves you, longing to spend time with you, to speak to you, and you find yourself here in his presence and you're wishing you were somewhere else. Looking off into space, waiting for it to end so you can get to the more important things. Do you struggle to believe what we sang in Psalm 63? For your love is better than life. My problem, honestly, is not so much the stopping on the Sabbath. My problem is the starting. Learning to love him. To trust that he loves me. It's a heart problem. There's hope for us who find that our hearts are so callous that sometimes we can't even feel that we can't feel. That's what it means to have a calloused heart. So I want to give us some application so that we can slowly but gradually learn to start to learn how to rest in him. And I promise you it will be hard. Our culture is dead set against giving you a day with your God. Our culture is. But we have to believe that God knows best and learn to start saying no step by step. One commentator writes, the Sabbath is God's stand against the tyranny of always having to say yes. The Sabbath is God's gift to a number of us in our obsessive, compulsive patterns of living. The Sabbath has got solution to the FOMO, fear of missing out, anxieties. On the Sabbath, we are in because we are with Jesus. God is with us, and the world does not define us. Friends, there's no rest for the wicked. So let's show our neighbors in this culture of relentless, nonstop producing and consuming Let's show them a better way. Who knows, that won't lead them to ask, what's the reason for the hope within you? I want to first preface this by saying, you may not be able to give the Lord a whole day of your life. Maybe your work is keeping you from that. Remember, read Deuteronomy again, that commandment. It's actually given to those in authority. If your boss won't let you have Sundays off or even part of the day, that's on them. That's not on you but we still have to make steps insofar as we're able and still seek to find rest. We need to make effort to devote this day to God. So to encourage us to not simply Sabbath stopping, which doesn't help, we need to start with Sabbath starting. And here's the best illustration I could come up with. Sorry if I embarrass my wife again. I remember the first time I held Jamie's hand. She was special in a way like no other girl. We'd gone out before, and we were driving, and I really wanted to simply just hold her hand. I even had that Beatles song going through my head, I want to hold your hand. That was agonizing. I spent a long time trying to figure out how to get my hand moved over. 
get it close enough to hers so I could finally just reach out and just touch her and try and take her hand in mine without her knowing what's going on. It took forever. But then it happened. My pinky just touched her hand and she just grabbed a hold of it and enveloped my hand in hers. I was on cloud nine. And it was totally worth all that effort, all that agonizing that whole time. It was uncomfortable. It was nerve-wracking. I was uncertain about what would happen. But it was totally worth it to begin a lifelong relationship. How much more would it be worth to make effort to discover Jesus and to know his heart and to know that he wants to take a hold of you if you're willing to make that effort? The one who made you and loved you and he loves you like no other one. My point is the Sabbath cannot simply be about stopping these things. It has to be about Sabbath starting. So I want to encourage you to start thinking about this day, trying to make adjustments. When you come to church, remember it. Every single time we come here, the Lord Jesus Christ is here. So when Jesus, he meets with us personally. Jesus is with you all the time, but in a special way, in the worship of God, Jesus meets with you. When you confess your sins, see your loving Heavenly Father smiling at you. When you sing praise, see Jesus as the one singing with us, leading us in worship. When you pray, Expect the Holy Spirit to begin to touch your heart and unite you to Jesus. And when the sermon starts, pretend like I go away and listen for the voice of Jesus who wants to speak and give you rest. I encourage you on this day, not hit the tube, turn on, watch the boob tube as my mom would say. Stop for five minutes and read a promise of God. Meditate on it and then be silent. And expect God to answer. Ask him to awaken your ears. Start to get in that habit. Just five minutes. And let's spend this day together as a community. Encouraging each other to make this day special. And if you see someone whose heart seems distant. If it looks like they're heading off to Egypt. Maybe they haven't come for a few weeks. Reach out to them. Pray for them first. Go and talk with them. And if that's you, and you feel yourself being drawn to Egypt, well then come and talk with someone. Share that. Pray. Go to God. Come talk with me. And trust that God is at work if you're willing to make the effort to initiate that relationship. Make this day a day unlike all the others of your week. Whatever you normally do in your week, I'm not going to put a bunch of Sabbath rules on you. That's a problem. But you need to make this day unlike the others. Me, I like to go out and go for a walks with my family and friends. I like to go out and enjoy my father's world. I rarely play games, but this is the day when I pull out the board games. Oh, and I eat extra dessert on this day. And parents, I encourage you to give your kids extra sugar on Sunday. Kids, you can tell your parents I said that. Uh, we'll talk later, Cindy. I'll take her to your house. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. My point is that I know children and I know their weekly schedules, the routines that kids in our culture do. Wake up early, get ready for school. After a whole day there, then you have your extracurricular activities, maybe sports events. If they get home in time for dinner, they eat the dinner, they have their chores, then they got to do their homework, and then they're bed. There is so much put on kids today. 
we're actually reopening our home this week to resume fostering. And foster kids actually have even more things added to their schedule. I'm going to try my best to help whatever kids come into our home look forward to Sunday. You know, Jewish fathers would give their children a spoonful of honey on the morning of the Sabbath to remind them of the sweetness and the foretaste of the promised land. And it's my hope that when Jamie and I are dead and gone, that we're going to have impacted some kids that this Pavlovian experiment will leave many of them later on in life just drooling for the Sabbath to get here. We can live a different way and we can encourage our kids to live a different way to show them it's a special day. Maybe not more sugar, but something that makes this day special to them. Friends, we're in a world of restless souls. Let's show others how their hearts can find rest on this day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you our thanks and praise. What manner of love is this, that you would send our Lord Jesus to save us from sin, death, and the devil, to conquer all of his and our enemies, and that we get to be in his presence forevermore. And while we're still in this weary wilderness, we ask and pray that you will incline our hearts to love you more. Will you help us to take the steps we need to say no to things, Lord, that are normally good, that we might say yes more and more to you, that we might experience your love for us, that in fact you might be able to change us, so that we might uh, shine like stars in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation that knows no rest. Do it for your glory and the glory of your Son, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.